Hello and welcome to the Check Down Charlie's podcast. I'm your host Eric. I'm here with my buddy Theo. Say hi to the folks, Theo. Hola. <laughs> you know, same time again. Just uh, still nursing my coffee. You know. Yeah. Exactly. So we do these recordings on Saturday, Sunday mornings. You know, we're just chilling out. You know, really uh, soaking it in before. Uh, football starts on Sunday. Before real football, well, before live football starts, I guess we'll tell you about football in the 80s and 90s now, because where we left off, the Giants had just reached the pinnacle of uh, Super Bowl glory by defeating the Denver Broncos in the 1986 Super Bowl. We kind of gave you uh, a little bit of a summary of the rest of the 80s, and we'll lead up to the next episode, which is the 1990s season for the Giants. So, the Giants would actually continue their solid play throughout the rest of the 80s. So in 1989, they finished the regular season with a 12-4 and record, but ended up being upset by the LA Rams in overtime. Longtime running back Joe Morris, who I had mentioned in the previous episode, had over 1,500 rushing yards in 1986, uh, was a big part of the offense. He actually ended up getting hurt. This allowed players like Dave Meggett and... Otis Anderson, also called OJ Anderson, to step in and kind of fill the void. The once highly touted Otis Anderson was actually a former first overall pick of the Cardinals, who had kind of been a bit of a train wreck throughout most of the 80s and 90s, but he was kind of the lone bright spot for the organization. Entering the 1990 season, the Giants had also drafted uh, Rodney Hampton in the first round to eventually be the replacement for Morris and for Anderson. So Anderson was actually coming into his 30s, so he was thought of more of a, as a backup. Yeah. And he was actually a backup during the 1986 season and ended up scoring kind of a garbage time touchdown in the 1986 Super Bowl. But again, Morris kind of took the lion's share of the carries. However, Anderson would lead the team in rushing for the 1990 season. It seems like uh, the Giants have always had, like, they've always built their team on a stable of running backs, mm-hmm. you know. And we'll get to to it more. It was, I'd say, amplified in the 2007, 2008 seasons. And it just seems like part of their philosophy for building teams has, has never changed. With the exception of right now, you know, Saquon is, is the lone star back. But I guess you could say they they still make investments. You know, Gallman played pretty well last week. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. with When you have a player like Saquon, you can't really help but try to give him the ball. However, he has been kind of getting hurt the past few seasons, which kind of, you know, is in favor of the argument of, again, having a stable of running backs. No matter how talented, you know, one is more than the other, like, it's just due to the nature of the position that there kind of needs to be a committee or at least, you know, a capable backup in a situation like that where, let's say, Joe Morris, you know, goes down and and someone like uh, Otis Anderson is able to step in. And obviously, I guess not a whole lot was expected of Otis Anderson just because they had already, they took Rodney Hampton as well. So mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, anytime you can kind of infuse your running back core with talent, I'm I'm sure, you know, they were happy to take uh, take Hampton. The Giants were a force to be reckoned with during the 1990 season. So Phil Simms was having arguably the best season of his career. He had the best quarterback rating in the NFC. Mark Vavaro was also able to return after missing the 1989 season with a knee injury. 
Lawrence Taylor was still performing at a very high level, and the defense was staunch once again. The unit that was once again coordinated by Bill Belichick would give up the fewest points in the league in 1990, and as we had mentioned before, the wide receiver coach for the Giants at that point was Tom Coughlin. So again, you can kind of see how the Giants like to build front office talent, let's say, internally, where people who come back to the organization, have a feel for the way that, let's say, the Maras want to run it. Exactly. It's just yep. interesting to see that developing throughout the 80s and 90s. The Giants, again, were kind of a wrecking ball through the league, to be honest with you, because both of the Giants and the 49ers were actually 10-0, and heading into a pivotal matchup in the NFC. In a hard-fought game, the Giants were bested by a score of 7-3. to Can you imagine that? A 7-3 game. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's one of those like hard fought like slog of a game like and I think the rules it's in the, the NFL the 49ers, right? The 73 score was against the 49ers, correct? Yes, it was. Yeah. You see, I know that they lost that game, but thinking about how both teams are built philosophically, like that's still in my mind a bit of a win because you've let the Niners only score 7 points. Yeah, exactly. Neither is focused on the passing game. Focused on beating you, outscoring you, mm-hmm. you know, that way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're right in terms of being able to stop an offense again with, I don't know if it was Montana or, or Rice. I guess it was Montana still at that point. Um, but, you know, prime Montana and Rice and really only giving up a touchdown is a win for the defense. Now, obviously, only putting up three points is problematic. But again, it shows you that both teams can compete and that definitely, you know, they'll be meeting in the playoffs once again. Like, for example, if you were to give during this season, right? Right now, as it stands, the Pittsburgh Steelers are first place team in the AFC because they have an undefeated record. Yeah. The consensus top team is, for the most part, the Kansas City Chiefs. And Mm -hmm. Are still on their side because at any given moment Patrick Mahomes could put forty points on. You know what I mean? They're yep. able. They don't need to focus on many things because they're so outstanding on offense, right? Mm-hmm. If the Steelers were to face the Chiefs right now and end in a score of seven to three, you would be confident that in the playoffs the Steelers could potentially beat them. And go to the Super Bowl. Yeah. And that, I mean, 7-3 to three in any game, I think, would be an unbelievable scoreline in today's NFL. I think, like, the way that the rules are now yeah. and the way that offenses are so, you know, wide open, kind of throwing the ball all over the field, like, yeah. it's almost impossible for a game to end 7-3, to three, in my opinion. I'm not so much, like, by hearing this, I'm not so much confident in the score, but the margin. Mm-hmm. If you're giving them four points, you know what I mean? Like if there's a difference of four points and let's say the Steelers were to lose to the Chiefs by four points nowadays, yeah, you'd be feel confident that that would be a really good matchup heading into the playoffs. Definitely. Definitely. I would agree with that. And and I think, yeah, I mean, this this game between the Giants and Niners in, in 1990 was, was definitely a sign of that as well. Like, after that game, the Giants would actually have a kind of a mini skid, meaning that they would need to win some games to have more of an advantageous position in the playoffs. Week 14, they would go up against the Buffalo Bills. 
Phil Sims, the longtime starter who, you know, obviously you've heard the name before, we've been talking about him, he would suffer a season-ending foot injury, which meant that career backup Jeff Hostetler would come in to replace him, having thrown only 68 career passes up to that point. Hostetler had actually been a backup with the Giants since the 80s and had earned his place on the team by playing mostly special teams. He had actually requested a trade earlier in the season, which was denied by the front office. I keep thinking about you know, players being able to force trades like a Jamal Adams, for example, being like, I don't want to play on the Jets, you know, fuck this. Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, like they were not going to resign him. They weren't, there was no way they were going to be able to resign him and Tom Brady at the same time. So they had to trade him mid-season. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that was denied. So after coming in for an injured Sims in week seven and not being able to play the following week, he's quoted as saying, there wasn't much further I could go after that. Hostetler noted that he had had discussions with his wife about retiring from the NFL at that point. So basically, like, you get a guy who, I mean, he'd been a backup for a few years, but he kind of was ready to give up hope on ever, like, being able to play anywhere. And then all of a sudden, you know, the football gods decided that Phil Simms's foot would kind of end the rest of his season. And given the nature of the NFL at that point, I wonder what the salaries were like for backup like Hostetler, like nowadays, you know, guys don't want to retire if they're backup quarterbacks because they're still paid pretty well. Yeah. And they don't really have to do much. Yeah, exactly. In his case, I guess he was still playing special teams, but I don't, I mean, I doubt that his salary was anything close to what a backup gets in today's NFL. Exactly. The Giants would basically have to shift their offense pretty dramatically to suit Hostetler's style. And they managed to actually win the next three games going into the playoffs. However, in terms of the grander conversation of them being Super Bowl contenders, obviously they were written off by a lot of different people thinking that obviously, you know, if Sims is done, then Hostetler is not going to be able to take them to that next level, you know? Yeah, very reminiscent of the uh, Nick Foles, Carson Wentz predicament. Exactly. Exactly. That's a really good comparison. Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of people had written off the Eagles once Wentz had gone down. And I mean, yeah, exactly. Phil Simms was arguably having an MVP season. That's a really good comparison. You could argue, I know Brady won it that year, but Mm -hmm. Carson Wentz was the true, he the true MVP. That's true. And I would argue that Carson Wentz has never really replicated that season. He's never really been the same since that injury, you know? Which is tough to see. I mean, obviously, as a Giants fan myself, you know, any time that the Eagles lose is, is pretty su- it's pretty sweet. But, like, in ju- just in terms of, like, being a general NFL fan, I just, I feel for Carson Wentz. I feel for him. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I do. I, you know, it's hard for me because I've always held him in high regard. I've always argued with many people that he was a top five quarterback mm-hmm. after his injury. It's hard to maintain that point as games go by yeah. and as the season progresses. Definitely. I mean, at this point, I think he leads the league in interceptions, but you could argue that it's to do with his wide receiver core not being the greatest. But hey, you know, numbers don't lie, I guess. We can uh, leave that for another time. Exactly. So back to the Giants. Their first matchup of the playoffs was against the Chicago Bears. So rookie running back Rodney Hampton actually ended up getting hurt in that game. So Otis Anderson took over duties as the bell cow back. 
So imagine you're in the first playoff game, you're using your backup QB, and then your first-round pick, star running back, rookie, also goes down. So you're down to your backup running back and your backup quarterback. Again, not a lot of people would have given you a, a shot. O.J. Anderson really took the uh, the opportunity, took the bull by the horns, so to speak. He ended up ended the game with 21 carries and being a focal point of the offense. And inadvertently, actually, before the game, Anderson had forgotten his game pants and played the whole game in his practice pants. I don't know why that makes a difference, but I guess he just kind of, you know, didn't even occur to him <laughs> you know innocent little mistake but um, you know a pretty superstitious person i <laughs> i would uh would think that means something afterwards exactly well i mean it's not only you because parcells after that point after they had actually beat the bears parcells told him to keep wearing his practice pants and that parcells in the front office would cover the resulting fines levied by the league let's do it it's like playoff <laughs> beer man. yeah exactly why not why not I'm not, you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Next up was a much-anticipated rematch with the San Francisco 49ers. So it was another battle between two great opponents as both traded blows early in the game. Nose tackle Jim Burt, who was actually a part of the Giants team in 1986, was now a member of the San Francisco 49ers. And there was one particular play where Jeff Hostetler kind of stepped up in the pocket to make a throw, and Jim Burt went low on him, tackling him kind of between the shin and the knee, which is now kind of considered legal in today's NFL. That would be a definite penalty, and I don't know if that would actually count towards being ejected from the game, but it's considered to be a pretty dirty play yeah. uh, in today's NFL and in, the, in 1990. However, there was no penalty on the play. Hostetler was down on the field, and several Giants players thought that this was intentional. As retribution, defensive end Leonard Marshall delivered a hit to Joe Montana that would knock him out of the game. <laughs> As a side note, many people think that this was actually a turning point in Joe Montana's career, uh, as this would lead to Steve Young being named the starter after this. They would actually end up beating the 49ers in the NFC Championship game, ending their quest for a three-peat. Eric Howard forced a fumble on running back Roger Craig that was recovered by Lawrence Taylor to set up a game-winning field goal by Matt Barr. There was also a 30-yard run on a fake punt by Gary Reasons in the fourth quarter. Matt Barr would actually have five field goals in the game. Leonard Marshall had two sacks and two forced fumbles, and the Giants would win the game 15-13. Margin of points. I know. Again, another really... Hard-fought victory, but again, I thought I thought it was interesting because you know the fact that they had knocked Montana out of the game, and then kind of that branches off into how the 49ers kind of progressed their organization. It was very interesting to me. It just goes to show how good of a coach Parcells is. You know, he wins in so many different ways. You know, the game includes five field goals and a fake punt. You know, there's. It's just he understands, you know, the capabilities of his team. And this seems more of a grind out versus, you know, the Super Bowl where where Sims ends up throwing for crazy statistics. Yeah. And think about it. I mean, you kind of had to grind out games with a backup QB and a backup running back in there. But, I mean, any good team kind of sticks to a philosophy and, uh, you know, the backups can come in and, and make a meaningful impact. So, obviously... 
you know, the defense was clearly, you know, the hero, uh, the heroes of, of these games. But don't take anything away from, from Jeff Hostetler, Notice Anderson, because they, you know, they would eventually lead the Giants back to the Super Bowl. High floors, man. High floors. That's Even it. Back That's exactly it. They would end up facing the Buffalo Bills in the Super Bowl. Jim Kelly was the quarterback, and Thurman Thomas was the running back. They were very high-flying offense. I think it was Andre Reid was their top wide receiver, if I'm not mistaken. Shoot offense. Yeah, exactly. So they were known for probably being the best offense in the league at that point. They kind of had a gargantuan task ahead of them. However... Mm -hmm. After being down 12-3 to early, the offense led long and sustained drives to keep the ball out of the hands of Jim Kelly. The strategy was clear in the game as they kept the ball away from the Bills with over 40 minutes of time of possession. Wow. They ended the game with 40 minutes and 33 seconds of possession, which was a Super Bowl record. Bill Belichick told his defense that in order for the game plan to be successful, Bill's running back Thurman Thomas would have to rush for over 100 yards, which was counterintuitive to a lot of the defensive guys, as they would say. Like, obviously, they don't want to let a guy get over 100 yards, but it was all part of the plan. Yeah, I remember watching this previously, and the emphasis was on beating up the wide receivers, you know, Mm -hmm. know, jamming them at the line of scrimmage, you know really taking away the focal point of their offense exactly, and just concentrating on Thurman Thomas. Even though he is an amazing running back, what really got them to the Super Bowl was their ability to pass the ball with Jim Kelly and the wide receivers. Exactly, exactly. Short completions and being physical with the wide receivers is how they would do it on defense. Stephen Baker, who they called the touchdown maker on the Giants, wide receiver, scored a uh, touchdown as well as Mark Ingram, not to be confused with Ravens running back, former Saints running back Mark Ingram, but he was a wide receiver at that point. He had a clutch reception and effort after the catch on a third and 13, uh, where he dodged and broke multiple tackles to keep the drive going. Coached by, you know, wide receivers coached by Tom Coughlin. Just Mm -hmm. putting it out there, whatever. So it ended up being a back and forth affair as the Bills actually had the the last possession of the game. So they definitely had a chance to go go ahead and, and win it. They set up Scott Norwood, who was their kicker at the time, on the 29-yard line with a field goal. Famously, I don't know if anybody else has seen it, the kick would end up going wide right. And the Giants had another Super Bowl victory. Again, if Scott Norwood makes the field goal, you know, the Giants don't win the game. And, and the Bills, who would end up, I think they lost like four Super Bowls in a row. Yeah, that was the f- start of the first one. They they lost this one. And then the following one against the Redskins or yeah. the Cowboys. And they played the Cowboys twice. And they also played the Redskins. For the Bills, it's unfortunate. For the Giants, it's great. But ultimately, you know, the Giants would grind out another victory. Otis Anderson rushed for 102 yards and was named the Super Bowl MVP. The Giants had seven Pro Bowlers that season, and Lawrence Taylor would be a Pro Bowler for the 10th straight year. Marv Levy, who was the coach of the Buffalo Bills, and Bill Polian, Mm -hmm. who was actually their general manager. He was their general manager up until 1992. They talk about this one as the one that definitely got away from them. Because out of the four, two of them, they lost to the the dynasty of the 90s, the Dallas Cowboys. Mm -hmm. And this one, they were just points away from winning the Super Bowl. They were that close. Yeah, that's the thing. And Bill Polian, I think he was the GM of the Colts, right, when they had Peyton Manning as well, later on? Yeah, 
I mean, clearly, you know, these guys knew what they were doing. But yeah, I think that the Bills generally just don't get enough credit for what kind of an offense, what kind of a team they fielded in in the early 90s. Like, outside of Buffalo, yeah. Jim Kelly doesn't really get spoken about very much. You know, it's almost, and if you were to mirror this to something else, the Patriots team that ends up beating the Seahawks at the final moment. Yeah. Arguably, the Seahawks were one of the best teams. They were poised to win a second Super Bowl after dominating the Denver Broncos. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like you could argue that both teams, whether it be the the Patriots or the, the Giants, were less talented from a personnel perspective than their Super Bowl counterpart. Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas, they just had all these weapons. Sure. Whereas Hostetler and Otis Anderson were the backups. But their coaching and structure of a game plan was the margin of difference. You know what I mean? Yep. I agree with that. And it's interesting that you mentioned the game plan as well. Bill Belichick's game plan, the actual game plan itself, is actually saved I'm pretty sure it's saved in the Giants Museum or in the Ring of Honor. They actually have it up on like a display or like up on a pedestal of, you know, how he was able to shut down that that offense just based on his own defensive philosophy. And I think you could argue again that this was kind of the leap that Bill Belichick took to being taken seriously as a contender for like a head coaching position, for example. So that wraps up the 1990 Super Bowl. And we're going into the early 90s, you know, what happens to the Giants organization once Parcell leaves. Mm-hmm. You know, Belichick goes his separate ways. But it's interesting that you mentioned that Belichick's game plan is in the Hall of Fame because Bill Parcells actually has something to say about that. And he goes, I don't know whose idea that was to put it in the Hall of Fame. If anything should be in the Hall of Fame, it should be, in brackets, offensive coordinator Ron Erhardt's game plan. We had the ball for 40 minutes and some seconds. That takes work, consistent play. We were only on defense for 19 minutes. To me, we had a good plan against them. It was well thought out, a couple of things we did, the two-man lines in the game. But I'm not diminishing anything. I'm just telling you. I don't know how that happened. I'm not knocking anyone here. So clearly, even though they were close, there was uh, definitely a difference of opinion on who the true MVP was. Yeah, and and I think that's a very valid point. And I think, because we both listen to the GM shuffle too, right? Where uh, Michael Lombardi talks about, you know, if you play, you don't play a lot of defense, then that's probably the best defense, right? Is that you're rested up and you're able to stop what the offense is doing. Uh, whereas the worst teams end up playing way too much defense. So yeah, credit the offensive coordinator's uh, game plan as well. And I think that's a good point. I think he's just trying to big up you know, his other coaches and not just give Belichick all the credit. Exactly. I think we'll leave it there. The Giants are now two-time Super Bowl champions. We've rounded out the 80s for you guys here. I would say a pretty glorious decade for the Giants in terms of the two Super Bowl victories, you know, building of the dynasty. They were really accomplished what they needed to accomplish by uh, hiring George Young. And and uh, you can see the kind of the dramatic transformation from the first miracle at the Meadowlands to, uh, to where we are now in the podcast ending the 1990 season. Yeah, the organization is now fitting up. They now fit the city that they inhabit. You know, mm-hmm. they're on par with the, the New York Yankees to some extent in terms of success. Mm-hmm. You know, 
you're never really going to beat the Yankees, but it's definitely a different organization from the the late 70s. Definitely. All right. Well, we'll leave you there. But uh, thanks again for tuning in to Check Down Charlie's podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter. Uh, tell a friend and uh, if you enjoyed it. And we'll see you at the next episode. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Check Down Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlie's on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlie's on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.